So good. We're picking up. We're going to start a, a new series this morning uh, in Ruth. We're going to go through uh, the book of Ruth, um, one chapter week, so it'll take us through the month of December, and Ruth deals with redemption. So we're in this uh, Christmas season, we're in the Advent season, hopefully uh, you parents, I think we, we still have some more packets, uh, Advent packets for you and your uh, family to go through and just uh, reflect on Advent, we got the candles and all, um, so make sure you grab one of those packets. If you want to get it for a friend um, or someone you're witnessing to, um, then you can grab those as a gift and take it to them. It's our gift to you to be a gift to them. But we're in this this Advent season, and the book of Ruth is a great time to reflect on the coming Redeemer. Because when we read through Ruth, we hear about this kinsman Redeemer, right? We hear about Boaz and what Boaz uh, does in redeeming Naomi and her line, and and Ruth and the the part that she played, and, and in the lineage of Jesus, right? That she's a part of the lineage of Christ, So if we did like Ancestry.com for Jesus, Ruth would be there. And it's really awesome to see the hand of God. And we went through um, Esther, where God's not mentioned once. Um, Now we're here in Ruth, where God is rarely mentioned, but we see the hand and the sovereignty and the providence of God over and over and over. And when we approach books like this, we should really take into consideration how, how God works in our everyday life. You see, there's, there's times where, where we read about these miraculous events in the life of Jesus and his ministry and things that he did, and we're like, why don't we see those things? And then we come across Ruth, and we ignore how God is actively, actively, amen, church, working his plan out. He's not disconnected. But I want to read this, this verse from uh, Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4, to start us out this morning. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That's God's word for us this morning, church. Let's be in an attitude of prayer. Thank you so much for this time that we get to come and worship you. God, I pray that you would just be with us in this time. God, I pray that that we would draw near to you through your word. Lord, I pray that you would um, just show us from your word how we ought to live. God, how we ought to be faithful, how we ought to be obedient to the mission that you've called us to, even in those difficult times, God. God, I pray that this would be an encouraging time together always convicting and just showing us ways that we can grow and grow closer to you and to one another and to be faithful to this new life that you've given us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I pray that we would grow with one another in this time. pray that we would be reminded of the Redeemer, Jesus, and how he redeemed us by paying with his own blood on the cross, by the shedding of his blood, the atonement of sins for his people. Wow, we praise you for that. God, we love you, praise you, give you all the thanks this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So that, that verse from uh, Habakkuk deals with uh, the way that we ought to live, right? We, we deal with um, the world and, and, and uh, this works-based faith 
and we wrestle with, and, and many people have tried to figure out this conflict of works and faith and how it works with salvation, but even in Habakkuk, right, the Old Testament prophet, we know that it says that the righteous shall live by faith. And we know that we're only made righteous in Christ Jesus, amen? So it's because we've been made righteous in Christ that he's imputed his righteousness to us that we can now live by faith. And indeed, we must. And this is what we see kind of play out here in Ruth chapter 1. Now, I've got uh, three progressive uh, points, so I'm not going to give them all away at first. But point number one is despair follows disobedience. Despair follows disobedience. Now, this shouldn't be shocking, right? We know that um, when we do wrong, I think this is why the world's gotten an idea of karma um, that is totally outside of the Bible, right? We, we understand that God's working out his will. Things don't just happen for no apparent reason, um, that God is in control and it's God's plan that's happening. But, but when we do bad things, bad things will follow, my dad said when I was a kid, he's like, if you get hit, it's because you did something wrong, right? Like, you, you mouth off, there's a consequence. When you go to school and you, you disobey your teacher, there's a consequence. Now, that consequence can look different depending on the situation, depending on the person who's uh, the, the acting judge in that moment, per se. But there are consequences. Now, there's also rewards, right? When you do well in school, you're rewarded for your good behavior. When you uh, obey your parents, right? Like, as you're supposed to do, there's a reward. My dad told me that reward is not getting hit, right? Sometimes it's not like you get the, the special treat, you get airhead candy, you get sour Skittles. It's that you don't get hit. But what we understand and as we read in Ruth chapter 1 is despair follows disobedience. Now, we have to understand the context here of what's happening in Ruth. We really need to, to lay the foundation for what is going on. So what, what is happening here? So here's our first sword drill for you kiddos that are in here. Bring me a Bible and have it turn to Judges 21-25. Turn it to Judges 21, verse 25, and bring it to me. Here's a little hint. If you already had your Bible open to Ruth, it's the very first verse or last verse of the book before it. So take Ruth, flip it, and bring it up because there it is. Uh-oh. Dexter's coming. Dexter's coming. All right, buddy, thank you. Here's a little prize for, for your efforts here this morning. Judges 21, verse 25 says this. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Thank you, Dexter. Sword drills are good, church. Uh, by the way, that Family Sunday, we keep the bigs. That's our elementary age class in here. We know that it's beneficial, and they um, learn in the worship service. They should be in the worship service, so we do that once a month, and then we do communion after service together. I think it's important for them to be in here. Judges 21, 25 gives us a context of what is going on. So this, Ruth is set in the place and the time and the context of Judges, and Judges ends with this. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's so much, so many problems to break down with that one verse, right? Of like, what can go wrong when there's, there's no one in charge, right? What can go wrong when everyone does what is right in his own eyes? We're all good people, right? We're all good. So we'd be fine if people just left us in charge. Hey, kiddos, 
Your parents just leave you in charge without giving you any guidance or direction? Some of these heads are like, yeah, and I'm like, no, I know that's not true because I know the parents here, right? Try not to make eye contact with all these kids because I know they're going to make me laugh. We do not do what is right in our own eyes. We do what is right in the eyes of who? God, right? Hey, kids, say Jesus. Jesus, right? We are following God. We are following Jesus. We are following his word that he has given to us so that we would know him and draw near to him. Judges 21-25 gives us the context of what was happening in the book of Ruth, and it was chaos. This is the context of Ruth. This is that time period. There's no law and order. It was a free-for-all. And on top of that, what does verse 1 of chapter 1 in Ruth say? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So there's this famine. That means there's this shortage of food, right? Like we almost experienced this last year. And thank goodness we didn't because we were rewarded with uh, beautiful steak dinners for not having to get into our Those of us who who have them or lost them, you know, whatever happened to your preps. But this was a time where they didn't have an abundance of food. There was a famine. This famine had struck the people of God in their own land. So put yourselves here in, in the shoes of Elimelech, who's this man here, the husband of Naomi. Put yourself in his shoes. There's a famine and there's a free-for-all. There's no ruler, and it's chaos. Now, you have your wife, and you have no food, and it's chaos. What do you do? Not what should you do, right? We all know the what should you do, but let's, let's be real with ourselves. What would we do? We'd probably do what Elimelech did. He takes off. He takes off for the country of Moab. It's disobedient. We'll get to it. Verse 2. It says, The name of the man was Elimelech, and his, the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. And they were Prathrites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Okay? The Israelites and the Moabites, right, had this off and on hostile relationship. But they were currently in a hostile one. Right now, this is like that that work relationship with that coworker where it's like we don't like each other, but depending on the day of the week, we may be more or less hostile with each other. You know what I mean? Like that person you go in and you're like, we work together and that's it, and you're like, we just for some reason we don't click, we don't get along, but you walk in and you're like, you have those days where you just nod, and you get all your work done. It's pretty. Um, pretty smooth sailing. You know, it's probably a Monday. Everybody's just kind of worn out. But then, like, by, like, Tuesday. See, Tuesdays are the worst day for me because it's, like, you're not halfway through the week. Monday, you had the blues, but you could talk about the weekend and really just shoot the breeze to get through uh, your work day. But Tuesday, you go in and you see that same coworker, right, or you see that friend in school, and you're like, oh, man, today is not the day for me. And that was where they were at. They were in this hostile relationship. They were in a hostile time, and this was not the place to be for Israelites. 
These were not people of God. This was not the land. This was not a part of the promise. This was not part of the will of God. And this is the place that he decides to take his family. See, this is a bad situation. You see, he takes himself out of what he thought was a bad situation, and he disobeys God and leads his family into despair. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, what? Died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The, one, uh, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Church, this situation is bad. This situation is messy. And if we're honest, this situation looks a lot like our lives. Maybe this looks like the season that you're in in your life where it just seems like everything is stacking against you. And let me say this, it may not be a time of where you're just being disobedient. It could be the effects of the fall of the world, right? I'm not saying you do bad, someone dies, all right? Hey, kiddos, I'm not saying if you do bad, someone dies. But when we read this story, we see that indeed disobedience will lead you to despair. It'll lead you to a place where you feel hopeless, you feel helpless, and it's in those moments that church, it should draw us close to God. It's, it's this, this broken and fallen world that helps us to realize that we need to cling to our Savior. We need to look forward to the Redeemer. That's the beauty of Ruth is we get to see this progression play out to the Redeemer and give us sight of Jesus, the true Redeemer. But this situation is bad. This family starting with Elimelech, lacked faith in their God. Now, names are crucial in the Bible, right? I got in um, a, a spat with uh, someone one time about um, my child's name and why I was naming my child that, and he said, no one's going to know what that name means. We don't carry a Greek lexicon around. I'm like, I don't care if you carry it around or not, right? We like the name. We're going to name her that, right? And uh, names stand true. Ever means like strong as a boar, strong as an ox, right? She's strong. Like this kid, I'm like, should have named her something like peaceful, gentle, something joyful, um, like doesn't eat dad's food. If that's like a name out there, she eats all my food, right? She's just like, so like names are significant. I, I really do think there's something there, right? But in the Bible, we see it play out time and time again. And it also teaches us a lot about the situation and the context. Elimelech, for instance, his name is, my God is king. Naomi was pleasant and sweet. Malon was illness, right? Like, don't name your kid illness, right? Probably not good things to come there. Chilion was destruction. Orpah was stubborn. And Ruth was friend. We really see all these play out except for Elimelech. God is my king. And one thing that he proved in, in taking his family out of their land to go to the enemy's land and leave the will of God to seek out their own interest, we see that God was not his king. And then on to his sons. In the land that they shouldn't have been, what do they do? They take for themselves Moabite wives, which goes against Scripture. Kids, can you turn your Bible to Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, and bring it up to me? Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. You see, they're in this land 
that their dad probably shouldn't have taken them to to begin with. And naturally, what are they going to do? They're, they're going to look for, up. Oh, we got it. Man, hopped up right over that pedal board. Nice. Hey, here you go. Little Pez kit there. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4 says this. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Church, this is, this is not made up. This is not a fairy tale or a nightmare per se. Here you go, Glenn. Thank you so much. This is the word of God. God is not trying to keep you from, from happiness, but church, he's trying to draw you to holiness. This isn't about this different ethnicity or this different group of people. It was about God and the worship of God. This is why it's important to learn that we should not date non-believers. See, we, we enter in these relationships, and, and what we do is we want to become their redeemer, right? We want to point them to the redeemer, Jesus, but what we do is we become their redeemer. We become their Christ. We become their God. But God says in Deuteronomy that his anger will be quickly kindled. And church, it also says that instead of turning them to the Lord, from God's own mouth, it says that they will turn you from the Lord. It's not a good place to be. See, they were living in disobedience, which would lead to their despair. Consider Lot's wife, who considered her situation before her God's direction. What did, what did Lot's wife do, right? Which is actually tied to the Moabites, which is tied to their um, incestuous situation, right? The, the Moabites were just not a good crew. After Lot's wife turns back and becomes a pillar of salt, her husband goes on and the Moabites just come about, right? But what she did, instead of following the providence and the direction of God, looks back to consider her situation and the life she's leaving behind instead of listening and obeying God. Disobedience will lead to our despair, church, every time. And when we find ourselves in our despair, see, we're not left without hope. It'd be terrible if Ruth just ended here. The husband died, the sons died, and be like, all right, this is terrible. When we find ourselves in despair, we know something needs to change. But we don't often count the cost. Point number two, change requires commitment. Change requires commitment. Now, when we are in our despair and we know something needs to change, change it. But church, count the cost. And what now seems like a helpless and hopeless situation for these three ladies, change is a must. It has to happen. Right? They are going to be left without, right? There's a reason, like later on in, in the New Testament, we read about like we need to take care of the widows because the widows weren't being taken care of, right? It's so easy to get caught up in life and be busy. And they weren't going to be taken care of. Especially Naomi in a foreign land with two other widow girls who married Israelites. It's not a good situation. This is not a good place to be. But our despair leads us to change. And change requires commitment. Devotion, right? We are to be devoted to God and to his word. What does his word say? Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. 
So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant, uh, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of, your hus- of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, I may become, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The situation begins to play out. Naomi is, is getting ready to depart and go back to the land of Judah, and she insists that Ruth and Orpah would stay in Moab. Stay in your land. It's going to be much easier here. You can find um, a, a, an indigenous person. You can marry them, and, and you can live your life here with your family, right? Like, notice, go back to the house of your mother, right? They have family there. Go and, and, and find husbands, Turn back, go your way. I'm too old to have a husband and, and have a child, right? And even if I got pregnant, would you wait around for him? No. No. No, they wouldn't. And it begins playing out. See, the life of a widow would be difficult in Judah. Naomi knows that. She's going back, and she knows that, that with this famine going on and with the, there being no ruler, she knows what she's about to get herself back into. She's leaving what, what, what she thought was a good situation when they left, and she's going back to this bad one because it's the only life she has. It's the only time she has. It, it talks about returning, right? What's really interesting is the amount of times it says return, to return, between verses 6 and verse like 20, uh, 21. How many times it says to return, which shows the repentance of Naomi. It's not just just turning around. It's that she's recommitting herself. She understands that the hand of the Lord has been against her, that they have done something wrong and something bad, and she needs to get things right. The life of a widow, Naomi, would be difficult, but for two foreign women from Moab with nothing to offer, that life would be treacherous. It would be impossible for them to live in that land away from everything that they knew. See, their best bet in the eyes of Naomi is to stay in their homeland. She's looking out for their best interest. But verse 13, see how Naomi notices the hand of God, the providence of God, even in her despair. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, for the sake of these women, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She knows that this has been an act of God. See, she is not departing from God. She simply knows the facts of the situation. She knows that this bitterness has has come up, and it's for the sake of these girls. This despair they found themselves in was a lack of disobedience. But now there's a change that needs to happen. And that change requires what, church? Commitment. It requires this devotion. 
And we see this devotion begin to play out in verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. This is a sad situation, right? We, we don't like departing from people. We, we don't like it when we know that it's our final goodbye with someone. So Orpah kisses her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Look at the contrast. Look at the difference between Ruth and Orpah. See, Orpah, she hears of this chance to go back and to stay in her comfort zone. So she does. She goes back. She's like, yeah, absolutely. I'll go worship my gods. I'll go be with my mom. You don't want me, Naomi. I'm not going back to the land of Judah with you. You know what Orpah did? You know what Orpah and Ruth did? Church, they counted the cost. You see, too often we, we ignore the cost of following Christ. Now we say, it is a free gift. Amen, it is. But that free gift, that righteousness that's been imputed to you, will play out in your everyday life. Are you believing? Are you following? And it doesn't mean that that following and that believing will get you into heaven. It'll show, though, that God has saved you, that he's redeemed you, that he's given you his, his spirit to live inside of you. Church, we must count the cost. It means denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily. It means, it means dying to our old self and being made alive in Christ, being sanctified into his likeness. Kiddos, bring me a Bible. This is the last sword drill. Luke 9, verse 23. And when we invite people to Christ, when we share the gospel, are we inviting them to this destination of heaven? Or are we telling them what it means to be a believer in Jesus? Awesome. We got the Bible here. Oh, good effort, everybody. All right, Luke 9, verse 23. He said to them all, to all of them, those who want to come with me must say no to the things they want. Pick up their crosses every day and follow me. Here you go, Bri. You can get a little Pez kit there. Thank you for helping. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. One thing we simply do not talk about enough, church, is counting the cost of following Christ. Jesus paid for your salvation, but your salvation will, will show itself, show proof and bear fruit in your everyday life. What are we following actively in our life? This is why when, when you hear your pastors talk about, about your testimony and you say, I can't quite remember the day, we'll be like, that's fine. We don't need to know about the exact day. We don't need to know, like, at 7.23 a.m. on my way to school, I got hit in the mouth, and I was like, I need Jesus. Give me the Lord, right? We don't need to know about those moments. What we need to know about is Christ your Lord. Have you repented of your sin and believed in him? And then we can talk about, are you following him? Because that's evidence that he has saved you. That's evidence that you've surrendered. That's evidence that you are dying to yourself and living to Christ. It's evidence that you are denying yourself, and taking up your cross. You see, for Orpah, following Naomi meant leaving her old life for a new one, and she didn't like it. It meant leaving her family. It meant leaving everything she knew, the God she wrongly worshipped. Look at how close she was to redemption. As, as we read through Ruth, it was like, Orpah, if you just would have held on, 
See, change requires commitment. Orpah, if you just would have held on a little longer. Matthew Henry says this. Many have a value and affection for Christ, yet come, a, come short of salvation by him because they will not forsake other things for him. Many have a value and affection, he says, for Christ, yet come short of salvation by him because they will not forsake other things for him. Count the cost. Change requires commitment. We need a redeemer to intervene in our life to grant us faith and repentance so that we can turn to him. So what happens? Naomi is, is, is trying to, to push Ruth away, but change requires commitment, and Ruth, church, is committed. She's in. It says, go back, follow your sister-in-law in verse 15. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I'll go. And where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty God has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You see again this contrast. See, Orpah stays in her comfortable situation. She stays in her very own homeland, what, what Elimelech and his family should have done in the beginning. And just as Naomi lacked trust in God, Orpah had no trust in God. Naomi left her, comfortable situ or her bad situation to seek out a comfortable one, and Orpah stays in her comfortable situation to avoid a bad one. She's not taking up her cross. She's not dying to herself. She's not committed. She's not following. She doesn't want change. Ruth, however, is committed. She has counted the cost. She will follow. Repentance leads to redemption. Point number three. This is the beginning of redemption. This is our final point. In case you were wondering, we're like slowly revealing points. You're like, man, he's, he's used to two services. This guy can go like, you know, 60 minutes, you know, 75 minutes. I could. You guys want to keep going? We'll just go through all of Ruth today, right? No? We've got to do it from one of the kids, right? Yeah. Oh, man. I'm not going to do that. I want to get to lunch, too. So Chipotle, it's got, like, I got a gift card, and, you know, we'll go get that. Repentance leads to redemption. We see that her commitment has, has shown her devotion to God. We see that, that Ruth exemplifies the obedience and the faithfulness we should have for the Lord our God. We should, we should have the same kind of like um, battle cry, like what we were just singing, where you go, I'll go, where you, where you stay, I'll stay. Wherever you go, God, wherever you send me, wherever you want me, I will go, I will be obedient to you. You know, you, you read about this, this terrible situation, you read about everything that they're going through, and you think, like, how, how could Ruth be so devoted? It's because she had her eyes on redemption. She had her eyes set on not the temporal situation, but the eternal hope in Christ Jesus. 
Matthew Henry says, earth is made bitter to us that heaven may be made dear. That in our bitter situations, we would prove our, our obedience and our faith in Christ fruitful and honest. We would prove it true. And it comes from this understanding, church, that repentance leads to redemption, that we know that everything that this world shows us and throws us, that it will all fade away and our life will be made new in Christ forever when we receive our glorified bodies. We have a hope in the second coming. Even though it's going to be a day of judgment, we know that it will be a day of glory. Amen? Repentance leads to redemption. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. And it was because of the faithfulness and obedience and Ruth's sacrificial decision to follow that they would soon be redeemed. And this harvest, this time that they are showing back up is not by chance. It is the providence of God and gives us a hope in Christ Jesus and his second coming. Look at God's providence in the time that they're coming back. R.C. Sproul notes this. He says, The season of harvest, which is this time, was a time of celebration, rejoicing together before God and remembering the poor. The narrative development is tied to this scheme. The women return home at the barley harvest, a time of God's favor and the beginning of fruitful restoration for Naomi. Nelson, you can go ahead and come back up here as we prepare our hearts for communion. This time that they're coming back shows us this time of redemption. That they've repented, they've turned. It says that they were going back to return, to return to the land of Judah, to return, to return. It keeps saying over and over. And they're showing up at this time of remembering the poor, right? And these two widows, if they were anything, they were poor, they were without, they did not have. And they were returning in a time of God's favor. They were, they were leaving that situation. Naomi knew that they were going back into a bad one. But R.C. Sproul says that this is the beginning of fruitful restoration for Naomi. This was a time where they would gather this grain, the barley, right? Jesus even, even dealt with the, uh, the barley loaves when he fed the multitude. And to, to put it in the perspective, like this was a, a poor person's food, the barley, like loaves, were small, like very small. So he had five barley loaves. And, and I always talk about this when, when we get to the loaves, because we talk about five loaves, right? You get a, a bag of bread, and it's like, wow, like you got a loaf of bread. But these were barley loaves. Say barely. Say barely. Barely. They were barely loaves, is what I say. Like it was barely anything. They didn't have much to give. And Jesus takes that little bit and he feeds the multitude. And it was in this time and in this season of redemption that they started to get a glimmer of hope, even though they may not have seen it yet. And it all started with the repentance, the turning back, the not following their own way, not living in disobedience, but turning back to God. And Ruth shows us the very same faithfulness and obedience we should seek out in our everyday life. Church, we can, we can look at our life, we can look back this week, we can look, look to any kind of time in our life and realize when we were not living according to God and his word and his will, we may not have experienced death, but we were in despair. We know that, that there's a, a, a great message to be seen here in Ruth, that, that those apart from Christ on the last day will be separated 
will live apart from God forever, right? Not, not die, not just be just, just destroyed, but will live apart from him, will suffer in a place that is described as gnashing of teeth. But we have a hope, not in the barely loaves, but in the bread of life, Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Michelle and, and Jeremy Dubois, if you're here, if you all could come up here and administer, uh, um, hand out communion this morning. And church, I, I don't like always describe it very well. If you could, when you come up uh, to, to get everything for communion, come down here first and you grab the, the cracker or chips as, as Arby calls it, it's the, the bread, right? And then you can come over here and then you can get the juice which represents the blood and then you can go back to your seat. We do have some prepackaged communion up here. You can just, it's a one-stop shop, you grab it and go. But I, I want us to remember that. When we, when we come to the table, it is so important that we remember the despair we were in apart from Jesus. It's important that we remember the life that we had without Christ. It's important to remember that Jesus brought us from death to life by shedding his blood and sacrificing his body. I try and remind us every, the first Sunday of every month when we do this, don't let this become stale to you. Remember the sacrifice Jesus made on your behalf if you're a believer. Remember what he did. Count the cost. Take up your cross and follow him daily. Despair will always lead us to destruction. Change will require that commitment. And redemption, what we're all after, is only found in Christ and repentance to him. It says that they, they were going back. They were going back, right? Going back to their land. That's a change of direction. Repent and believe in Jesus if you haven't already. Change your course and believe in Christ. Believe in Jesus, our Lord. Take it, Michelle's not in here. She, she's coming up? Okay. I'm gonna make sure. All right. Church, I wanna say one thing before uh, I pray and you all can come up at that point, but this is a sacred time at the Lord's table for believers who have rested all their hope on the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. If you're not yet a believer, you should refrain from partaking until you have come to faith in Christ and then joyfully partake along with the body of Christ. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you wanna know about that like now, Pastor Gary, can you raise your hand? You can go drag him out, be all right. It's no embarrassment, no judgment here. Go grab him and talk to him. Pastor Mark is up here at the front. He's a little easier to get out because he's right by a door. Makes a little bit more sense to drag you out. But we want to talk to you about Jesus. Those of you who are believers, we encourage you to examine your heart so that you can partake in a worthy manner. If your heart is harboring unrepentant sin, refrain until you can come freely to partake. As the bread and the cup are served, we ask that you hold them so that we can all partake together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning that we've had together. We thank you that we were not left in our own despair. We praise you that you've granted us repentance to those who have believed in you. By your grace, we've been saved. God, and I pray that we would, we would commit our lives, devote our lives to you. We would take up our cross daily. And as we approach the table this morning, I pray that we would reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of his people. I pray that this would be a time of celebration, remembering the bread of life. 
God, I pray that you would just continue to draw us close to you. God, and I pray that this week and, and then this Christmas season, God, that we would take the opportunity to point people to Jesus, our Lord. I pray that we would take the opportunity to share the gospel that takes us from despair, it takes us from death, and it restores us to new life in Jesus. What a beautiful, not story, but plan that you ordained before the foundation of the world to save your people. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.